This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. No one compliments you when their paycheck is correct, but make one mistake and you risk alienating your entire workforce. Kronos makes sure your payroll is done right the first time, from punch to paycheck. With embedded checklists and simplified workflows, Kronos is your single source of truth. With Kronos, you get HR, payroll, talent, and timekeeping in one unified system, all with a proven implementation approach and simplified, transparent pricing. Learn more at kronos.com payroll. Kronos, workforce innovation that works. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Are you afraid of heights or closed spaces? Maybe snakes, bugs, or rats? Well, you're not alone. Our prehistoric ancestors had the very same fears, which is why you're alive today. Fear is adaptive because it protects us. But what if the very same fear that helped early humans survive in dangerous primitive environments actually hinders us today? What if in an age of rapid technological innovation, globalization, and instant communication, the lack of fear is an advantage, and the only truly reckless act is not taking a risk at all? Former AOL executive and chairman of the National Geographic Society, Jean Case, thinks so, and she talks about it in a new book called Be Fearless, Five Principles for a Life of Breakthroughs and Purpose. On today's podcast, she talks about those five principles, and she says leaders need to start viewing risk as R&D and failure as a learning experience. In fact, Jean encourages people to talk about their mistakes by sharing her own failure resume and hosting what she calls fail fests. She discusses why CEOs need to get out of their bubble and get uncomfortable, and how greater diversity actually affects an organization's bottom line. Plus, she reveals the coolest thing about being the first female chairman of the National Geographic Society and talks about National Geographic's history of fearless women going back over 125 years ago. Coming up with Jean Case in just a moment. Jean Case, the first female chairman of the National Geographic Society in its 130-year history and CEO of the Case Foundation, is a philanthropist, investor, and internet and impact investing pioneer. Before founding the Case Foundation in 1997, she was a senior executive at America Online, Inc., where she directed the marketing and branding that helped bring AOL to the masses. In addition, Jean currently serves on the boards of the Accelerate Brain Cancer Cure, the White House Historical Association, and BrainScope Company, Inc., as well as on the advisory boards of the Brain Trust Accelerator Fund, Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society, and Georgetown University's Beck Center for Social Impact and Innovation. Now she's written her first book titled Be Fearless, Five Principles for a Life of Breakthroughs and Purpose. Well, Jean Case, thanks for joining me. Hey, Ben, it's great to be with you today. Thanks for having me. 
I had your husband, Steve, on the show a while back, and it's always nice to be able to have the wife on to set me straight and give lie to the myth of the man, bring him down to earth a little bit. I don't know uh, if that's my role. I no? think he's pretty up there myself. Yeah? Well, that's good. How long have you two been married? Is- uh, it'll be our 21st anniversary this year. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. And now, I mentioned in the intro that you have what a lot of people, including myself, might consider a dream gig as chairman of the National Geographic Society. What's the coolest part about that work? Oh, gosh, just being in the presence of the fearless men and women of the National Geographic Society, both out in the field, but also even at headquarters. You know, we like to say that uh, we have the opportunity to bring people um, to the front lines of the unknown and let them see the magic of our world. We have explorers all over the world, and it's a really exciting time at National Geographic. Uh, Do you and Steve travel a lot? We do, and I particularly travel a lot with National Geographic out into the field with explorers. Really? You know, a lot of people don't know it, but National Geographic today has the number one social media footprint in the world of any brand. We're coming up on 100 million Instagram followers, believe it or not. Oh, that's incredible. Well, the photography aspect, so it makes sense. Yeah, right. But there is a funny story there, Ben. About 100 years ago, you know, we've always had fearlessness in our DNA at National Geographic, and our founders were very fearless, but about 100 years ago, the new tech was photography. And National Geographic was a pretty serious science and exploration journal. So when the editor wanted to include some photographs to help tell the stories, a few board members resigned saying, that's a fad. (laughs) That's not serious science. We're not doing that. And we look back and we're so glad the rest of the board was fearless enough to say yes, because look where we sit today, really known for our rich photography and video assets. Yeah, sensationalism. (laughs) Exactly. Um, It's an interesting organization because you have kind of, I guess, from what I can tell, a private and a public component to it. That's right. Yeah, let me try and explain it just a bit. So, yeah, the nonprofit was started 131 years ago this month. We just turned 131. And um, but really, right from its birth, it had born into it what we know today as a social enterprise. They used the the magazine to make the money and then used that money to throw back over the wall to fund more science and exploration. So what that looks like today is about three years ago, we did a joint venture with 21st Century Fox and put all of our commercial businesses, our channel, our digital, our magazine, you know, all of the our travel, our, our consumer products into that joint venture. Out of that was created a $1.2 billion endowment and about $100 million a year comes over the transom to let us continue to fund really exciting work on the forefront of science and exploration and conservation. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things you talk about in your book, Be Fearless, is unusual collaborations. All right, thanks for that. It really is so, yes, one of the principles is reach beyond your bubble. Mm -hmm. And um, that really is about looking across and building unlikely partnerships. You know, it turns out if you have a big bet, which is the first principle, make a big bet, you know, it's helpful to look around no matter where you sit in life and say, who can help me go further and faster? And often it's non-obvious people, people different than yourself or organizations with different, you know, skills 
skills or assets they bring to the table. What can they do? They can expand your perspective, maybe broaden your market, and cover your blind spots. And so this venture that we've had with Fox has been great, but you might know Disney is poised to um, acquire Fox. So Disney will be our new partner with the National Geographic Society. Which probably opens up all kinds of oh, new all kinds of new realms in it's terms very, of education. Yes, very very exciting. People. And the wow. other thing I'll say is with Bob Iger as Disney CEO, they too have a fearless DNA. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they are not afraid of the future, and they're rushing into the newest ways to make their company relevant. Yeah, yeah. Talk about big bets. I yeah, mean, when Eisner their... revived Disney, and when Eisner and Iger, you know, bought ABC, that was considered a huge bet that for a was. movie company. And now, as you know, they're planning a streaming service, mm-hmm. which we at National Geographic are super excited about because it will allow us to take a lot of our work and put it in front of even more consumers. Yeah, all kinds of opportunities there. Yeah. Now, in your book, you tell a lot of these principles through telling stories of famous people who took big bets. One of them is sort of your predecessor. It's a woman who was the first National Geographic (laughs) board member way back in 1892. That's right. right? Can you believe that? She was not only the first board member, but before that, she was the first female editor and photographer in the magazine as well, and then rose to a board position. Think about it today. We're still struggling. I still sit on boards, believe it or not, Ben, where I am the only woman. And 100 years ago, the National Geographic had a woman. But she wasn't just your average woman. She was a fearless explorer and adventurer. Um, And so she brought so much to this society in her day. Her name was Eliza Skidmore. Yeah, Nat Geo sounds like a very forward-thinking organization, even from the get-go. Yeah, well, that's why I really hold it up in the book. You know, the bottom line is... One thing you have to be careful in life and in your institutions is not to get too comfortable or rest too much on Mm -hmm. your past success. And we've seen time and time again, you know, I write about, you know, Blockbuster and Kodak being disrupted because I think they're really cautionary tales, especially Kodak. Most people don't know that Kodak actually invented digital photography, but they were making so much money on the old-fashioned film that they didn't want to really embrace the new technologies. So I feel very fortunate that at National Geographic, we constantly are peeking around corners to see what's next and how we stay relevant. And that's a big message of the book as well. Uh, Yeah, and I think one thing that you say in here that relates to Kodak is we're living in an age, especially with the pace of technology and communication, where it's almost reckless and foolish not to take risks. That's right. That's right. Because I think you I have your window. Josh Linker's quote in there, it's suddenly become recklessly dangerous to sort of keep with the status quo, yeah. right? Um, but that really is a message in the book. But if I can, I'd like to just take a step back and also sort of let your listeners know why is this book here anyway? You know, yeah. I am, um, as we've talked about, I've just had this really rare opportunity through my career and the different phases of my career to travel around the country and to travel around the world, in some cases into communities, in some cases to really remote spots. And as I have, I've seen one thing is a, has a commonality no matter where I am, and that is that everyone everywhere, no matter their background, has great ideas about how to make the world better. It might be more their community, but something where they say, you know, I have an idea to solve a problem or to address an opportunity. But what they often lack is sort of an understanding of how do I get started, or worse, they say to themselves, that can't be me. It ha- you know, you have to have these special qualities. So about six years ago, we undertook some research at the Case Foundation, which I run and my husband and I founded together, as you mentioned. And we looked at the core qualities of change makers, entrepreneurs, and innovators that have broken through with success. And it turns out they were these five simple principles. 
what was so cool about that was we could debunk this idea that it takes something super special, like genius or an MBA or just the right school or connections. And so the book is really a clarion call to people out there who have ideas and a playbook um, to really help them think about how to get started. But as you said, I use stories of known successes and very unknown successes <laughs> to take the reader behind the scenes and hopefully inspire them in their own journey. Yeah, and you yourself are something of a success story that fits the mold of what you're talking about in this book because you talk about when you were growing up, uh, your home life was a little bit unstable, your parents divorced, and at one point you went from living in sort of this bucolic setting to Fort Lauderdale, which for you was kind of an urban, gritty environment, I guess, (laughs) but your mom wanted you to face that reality and to be out there in the world. What did that do for you? So as I describe in the book, I was born in a really small town in Illinois called Normal. Um, normal Illinois. And so I had the most normal of starts in (laughs) life. Um, But yes, after my parents divorced, my mother moved us to South Florida, believing that there might be better opportunities down Mm. there. She was raising four kids alone. I was the youngest. And I really started life, Ben, to your point, as a recipient of philanthropy. You know, I had the opportunity to go to the local private school on full scholarship there, but thanks to the generosity of others. And, you know, it's been a really exciting um, American story in my mind to have lived such a life that today I have resources that now I can reach back and try and lift and empower others. But as I write in the book, because of that early experience where I was, I, it was almost like a schizophrenic thing where some part of the day I'd be with, you know, very elite, privileged people and their families. Then I'd go home to my working class neighborhood. But I would see people in my neighborhood were just as smart and just as capable. They just lacked opportunity. So I think that set in me a real commitment that I would try to use my resources in my career, my talents, whatever I had to bring to the table to try to empower others. As a young girl, who were some of your own heroes? Well, I talk about one in the book who was the town mayor who then became a congressman. He was a mentor to me uh, in high school. I interned in his law office. Um, And, you know, that was just a wonderful uh, opportunity. And I want to say to anyone listening, you know, if there isn't someone in your life right now that maybe you're lifting in some way or giving them opportunities, please think about it because. Really, as I sit here, the the list would be too long of people who, in one way or another, kind of reached back, gave me a hand, and it's really the reason I sit here today. And I think that you said that he was the one who got you into Washington, and That's before right. you joined AOL and all that, you worked right. in the Reagan administration. What did That's you do right. for the White House? Well, it's kind of funny because I thought, I mean, the reason I was interning in his law office is I thought I was going to be a lawyer in the public sector. So after I worked for him, he was a congressman, and I would work for him by day and go to college at night. But I had this very unusual circumstance where when I came to Washington, I was offered this political appointment in the Reagan administration. Um, and I worked in public affairs. And it was sort of too good to be true in some ways for me. I hadn't even yet graduated from college. And, of course, as it turned out, I never did graduate from college because I thought I'd come here and continue to go to school at night and finish my degree. But my career really took off. But one sort of moment happened that was a dark moment. Failure and risk is something that I talk about a lot Mm -hmm. in the book. And so I add these vignettes in the book just to try to keep it a little real. Um, One day they walked in and said, look, there's going to be a gap in your funding. You know, this is a political appointment and we don't have the budget for a month or two, but it will pick back up. So just go chill. It's like, 
what? <laughs> Go chill? Like, how am I going to pay my rent? Yeah. What am sounds I going to like do? Sh- sounds like a lot of people during the shutdown right exactly, now. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so anyway, I had heard about this new tech company, didn't really understand at the time what they did. And it was right down the road. And it was actually the nation's first pure play online service, which we would call an internet service today. And they needed this temporary job of helping to put together this conference that they were putting on. So I went over to do this temporary work. And I'm telling you, I fell in love. I saw immediately the empowering nature of this new technology. And I never looked back. And I was thankful to get a permanent role with them. And then GE recruited me to start something for them. And then the really big risk moment came because I had a very good career trajectory at GE when this startup called that was going to become AOL and asked if I'd come help build an online service for them. And I made the leap. But Ben, I think you know, in the book, I say, gosh, my friends were shrill about my decision. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. You can't leave this you know, career at GE, this safety yeah. net. At the time, well, that's it, a plum job. It was a plum job. 80s. And they were the yeah. most valuable company in the world mm-hmm. at the time. I mean, everybody wanted to work at GE. But I really was a believer in empowering others. And I saw that the big company was unwilling to take the kind of risk that I knew needed to be taken mm-hmm. to grow a new market opportunity. Uh, that no, I mean, no one knew what an online service was back then. This is the 80s, okay? <laughs> and so I made the leap. And I'm so grateful looking back that I did that because it really was the best decision of my life, but certainly among the most scary decisions mm-hmm. or moments of my life as well. Yeah. At some point, I think you talk about working at GE and how they had all this money and they wanted to take risks, but yes. they only wanted to take risks that were pretty much sure things. Correct, and that's not, not really risk-taking, risk, huh? right? That's <laughs> exactly right, you know. Um, and I think they had good intentions, but they were pretty comfortable. It goes back to what I was saying about organizations that get really comfortable. Sometimes, you know, that really works against the ability to take risks. You don't want to trade out a good thing for maybe an extraordinary thing. But I did that when I made the decision to leave. And as I said, I, I, I really feel like it was maybe the best decision I made career-wise ever. Well, again, the subtitle of Be Fearless is Five Principles for a Life of Breakthroughs and Purpose. You mentioned a few of them. Make a big bet, be bold, take risks, make failure matter, reach beyond your bubble, and let urgency conquer your fear. I want to spend a little time with each of these. First off, making big bets. What are some of your favorite stories of people who didn't listen to the naysayers, swung for the fences, yeah. and hit a home run? Yeah. Well, you know, there's one. We're sitting in L.A. while we're while we're having this conversation. There's a young woman who was attending UCLA, and she and another student noticed that there was a serious issue with what we'll call food security on campus. Kids who maybe just had enough money to, you know, make tuition but didn't have a food plan and often were left really hungry while going to school. So they wanted to do something. So they did, they had this idea of we really want to solve this problem on our campus. This is how it got started. And so they, you know, did what most would do. They collected food for donation and they realized that just wasn't going to cut it. So they ultimately came up with the idea of using the food swipe card that is so popular on campuses everywhere. And for those that don't know what that is, it's almost like an ATM card that you can use when you go to the cafeteria and you swipe it. Your parents usually load money on it at the start of the year if you're fortunate enough. Enough. And then each each swipe is a meal. Well, anyway, they, they suddenly realized, wow, that could be powerful if we could somehow tap into that. Well, they were not popular with the management of the school or the cafeteria at the time because 
at that, and it's true in many campuses across the nation, a lot of those food credits don't get used, and the and the schools get to keep them at the end of the year. Yeah, it's a racket. <laughs> so they were threatened. They were told, you know, get out, you know, get off our campus. Everything. Well, anyway, they finally were successful in making that happen. And today, they are on sixty campuses around the United States. The governor of California last year passed a law and funded seven million dollars to make sure that the rest of the state universities in California. Uh, will participate. It's called Swipe Out Hunger. Her name is Rachel Sumka. And one of the other great stories about Rachel um, is when she put her hand up to say, okay, they realized they needed to kind of get a little more professional and have a CEO in the organization. She said, I want to be that. One of her colleagues said, you're too nice to be CEO. (laughs) But you know, she's a great example of staring sort of fear and insecurity in the face because anyone Mm -hmm. would feel that if someone said that and said, I'm going to do it anyway. And today she's the CEO and she's just killing it out there and really making a serious uh, impact in the area of food insecurity for college students. Good for her. Yeah, you really never know until you rise to the challenge. And there are plenty of people who just are never challenged, and so they never even have that opportunity. So in some cases, your fear of risk uh, is actually the big opportunity of your life, if you look at it the right way, I guess. Totally. In fact, you know, we've talked a little bit about my trajectory, but one of the things I do, particularly when I'm on a college campus, and I did a whole commencement address on this, was I really pointed to how each failure and really sort of dark moment, like, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe I felt like life was over, (laughs) really played a role in providing an opportunity down the road. And this is not, oh, everything works out. This is like meaningful, made me better, made me stronger, set me up for something down the line. And I like to talk about risk, and I do in the book, as R&D. If we thought about it that way, right, we accept it in science and tech and medicine as trial and what? Mm -hmm. Error. Error. But for some reason, in so many places, this, you know, if people you know, make mistakes along the way, you know, they kind of hold their head down in shame. And the bottom line is how we perfect ideas, how we get stronger and better is to have failures, make them matter, as the make failure matter principle says, and push forward and be even stronger. You know, Einstein says failure is success in progress. And if we could only embrace that thinking, I think we do many different things. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Gene Case when we come back in just a minute. In today's age, it can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more, especially when the likes of social media can be so addictive and time-consuming. So you might think you don't have the time to read a book or to develop yourself. Well, think again. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways and need-to-know information, so you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library, from self-help, business, and health to history books. I like Blinkist because in less than 15 minutes, I can get the gist of a book or take a quick refresher course on something I read years ago. Plus, I'm an auditory learner, so I love that Blinkist allows me to listen. Not long ago, I used Blinkist to reacquaint myself with two classics, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People and Stephen Covey's The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. More recently, I just enjoyed the book Becoming by Michelle Obama and listened to Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now in preparation for my interview with Dr. Pinker. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for my audience. 
Go to Blinkist.com slash kick to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash kick to start your free seven-day trial. One more time, Blinkist.com slash kick. Hey folks, Valentine's Day is almost here, and you know how hard it can be to come up with a great Valentine's gift that's personal and shows you actually put some thought into it. If you want something that's a reminder of the special memories in your relationship, check out Homesick Candles. I love this company because nothing gets me more sentimental than a scent that takes me back to a special moment in my life. And Homesick Candles' unique scents reflect all U.S. states and dozens of cities around the world. They're a thoughtful way to tell the story of your relationship's journey. Each candle is made from a natural soy wax blend and comes in a beautiful gift box. Their new first kiss candle even lets you celebrate the spot where you shared your first kiss. Just go to homesick.com and check out their first kiss finder to pick yours. I tried their first kiss finder. My wife and I shared our first kiss after dinner on an autumn night in Pasadena, California. And every time I light Homesick Candles Southern California candle, that smell of orange blossoms and jasmine takes me right back to that night. I've also spent a lot of time in Austin, Texas, and Homesick's Austin Candle brings back all kinds of wonderful memories of the pine trees along the green belt and the smell of cedar trees when I was a boy at summer camp in the Texas Hill Country. The hints of musk and leather even make me think of the night my wife and our friends went bar hopping along Austin's famous 6th Street. Nothing has the power to evoke a special memory like scent does. That's what makes Homesick Candles such a great idea. Go to homesickcandles.com, and for every classic size or three-wick candle you purchase, you'll get a free mini-candle of your choice. Pick your favorite memories and candle, add them to your cart, and for each classic or three-wick, you can add your choice of any mini-candle for free. All you have to do is enter the code KICK at checkout. That's homesick.com with promo code KICK for this awesome deal. This great offer is only available until February 15th, so order now. And now, back to the show. We rarely hear about the failures of successful leaders, but I know that in Silicon Valley and in the broader tech world, it's practically law that you must have at least one failed tech startup under your belt before you're even taken seriously. I think that's right, Ben. And, you know, I'm an investor in startups. I sit on startup boards. Um, I will tell you, I am more inclined to back an entrepreneur who has had one or two failures when they're starting something because I know they've learned really valuable lessons. So they're like further down the line as they're trying to take their next Mm -hmm. idea forward. Yeah. And in encouraging people to talk about their failures and to look at failure a different way, you actually talk about what you call your failure resume. Uh, What's on your (laughs) failure resume and what are the lessons and the silver linings that came out of those misfires? Yeah, well, I already talked about one. To me, it was a real failure when I sort of lost the position that I had in the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. That teed up the opportunity for me to move over to tech. But I write about a very public failure in the book where there was a clean water initiative we undertook at the Case Foundation, and I had 
Bill Clinton to my right and First Lady Laura Bush to my left as we launched it. It was pretty high profile, and we normally don't do things that way. But we were big believers. We were aiming at 10 sub-Saharan African countries and hundreds and hundreds of villages to provide clean water with this unique intervention, which was actually like a children's uh, merry-go-round. As the kids would play on it, it was pumping clean water from deep in the ground. So it seemed brilliant to us. Um, But we had sort of... uh, problems executing on the ground right out of the gate. So we spent the first few years really trying to course correct, and it became clear we weren't really going to achieve the level of quality and the scale that we had been looking for and that our partners really had expected. So we had this board meeting and had a conversation about it, about, okay, so what do we do now? Could we just sweep it under the rug and hope nobody noticed? But we knew we couldn't do that. (laughs) So we decided to come clean, and I wrote a blog called The Painful Acknowledgement of Coming Up Short. And I just laid it out there that we were trying to do something really big, and you know we really had encountered failure along the way. So we made a commitment to stick with it, to pivot, not stick with that initiative, but to stick with bringing clean water to villages. We pivoted to um, new partnerships on the ground, and it all worked out in the end. But it really started for us. Lots of friends called after I wrote that blog, colleagues, people I didn't even know saying, no one talks about failure. Thanks for doing that. So we started True. these things called Fail Fests, usually involves <laughs> a little wine or a little beer. <laughs> of course. And ask people to share their failure lessons, not celebrating failure because no one likes failure, but really become like almost so we could learn from each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was kind of almost the genesis of this Be Fearless work that led to the book. Right. It seems to me that the only true failure is to fail and learn nothing from it. Yes, that's absolutely right. Or never to have tried. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. That's its own form of failure. Yeah, it's weird because we do have almost this cartoon corporate idea that failure is not an option or no one should ever stick their neck out. It's, you know, sort of like this office space, the office Dilbert like mentality. Right. Um, Is it pretty daunting to destigmatize failure? I think it really is for everyone. And, And, you know, there is this point where fear and failure merge, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, people can be gripped with fear at the very idea of taking a risk that could end in failure. And that's part of the reason that I talk about this kind of concept of R&D, concept of recognizing that if you if you really can go to school on your failure, and I use Thomas Edison as a great example, he said, a lot of people think I'm a you know brilliant uh, inventor, but I could be more correctly described as a great sponge. What he did was he looked at the failures of people before him who had tried to create electricity in the light bulb, and he went to school on them. There were 18 patents for the better part of a century before Thomas Edison perfected it. And he was the first to say, I couldn't have done it without the failures of those who came before me and learning from them. So I try, and you know, I have this chapter in the book called Fail in the Footsteps of Giants, where I take really well-known success stories. Oprah Winfrey told she just wasn't right for television, fired you know, from an early television job. Michael Jordan, who got cut from his high school basketball team and went home and cried in his closet because we sanitize these stories of success once they happen. And then people don't understand there were fears and failures each step of the way. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that'll be an inspiration to people as they're taking forward an idea to say, well, shoot, you know, if Michael Jordan could keep going or Oprah, maybe I can too. Sure. And do you have a favorite story of someone who we all look up to now who maybe made their big bet and failed, but kept on going and made another big bet and it paid off. And you know this story well, and so do your listeners. Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
right? Fired he built from Apple, Apple, fired from Apple. And when he gave his Stanford address, and for any listeners that haven't heard it, they should, okay? He basically said that was the best thing that ever happened to him because, of course, that allowed him to come back to the company and really create and grow the company that we know today. A lot of us forget that Apple was nearly bankrupt before it turned around. And, you know, Steve's ability to come back into that company and make it the great company, I just think is a terrific story. And he talked about, after he was fired, the lightness of beginning again. And I think, you know, one of the things that we all need to learn how to do is sort of stare these fears in the face, keep going. And if we fail, actually look at what we can pick up as a positive from that to keep moving forward. Hard to do when you're down there in that hole. I'm not trying to like, you know, paint (laughs) it as easy. But those who have, and that's why I put these stories in the book, will tell you it was a big part of, of, of their success. And you also talk about the importance of getting uncomfortable. And we can go all the way back to your childhood, moving to Fort Lauderdale or more recent experiences where you literally got uncomfortable doing, I want to say, some kind of exercise involving a telephone pole or something. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it was. So it's a pretty personal story. And again, this is not a biography. I just put a few vignettes in. But um, on this issue of needing to get uncomfortable, so it was an outward bound type experience where... I had to climb a telephone pole 30 feet in the air. I was belayed, so if I fell, I would be caught. Climb it 30 feet in the air, stand up on the telephone pole, nothing to hold on to, and then walk across another telephone pole laid on its side. (laughs) When I got to the top and had to take that first step out to the telephone pole on its side, I didn't think I could do it. And I was teary, and I was mortified. I was with a team of five down on the ground, and I said to the guide, I just don't think I can do this. And my voice was cracking. I was so embarrassed. I just couldn't find it to take that first step. And she looked up and said, but Jean, you can try. And there was something about those simple words, which sounds so like, duh, at one level, but it was profound in that moment for me. And I took my first step. And of course, I had success going across and coming back. Um, and when I got down, we talked, you know, these outward bound things you have, like these kumbaya circles right, when you're done, right. <laughs> you talk about that experience <laughs> and what did it mean? And she said, do you think you've gotten to a point where you're mostly doing things you know you'll be good at? And I said, wow, no one's ever asked. And I realized I had. So I started making lists of things I knew I wouldn't be good at or I imagined I couldn't, it could never be me to mm-hmm. do that. And I started taking them on after that. And I'm telling you, Ben, life has been so much sweeter <laughs> since then. I was in my early 40s, and I decided I wanted to become a black belt in Taekwondo. Wow. And I did. Really? And no kidding. I totally did. But And the reason I like to use that example is because there's no part of me that would have believed I would be flying through the air with kicks or those kind of things from that day when I started. But like so many big ideas that we want to take forward, it was literally one step at a time, mm-hmm. one day at a time, you know, one training session at a time. It was years it took me to get my black belt. But the bottom line is you can get there from here. You just have to chunk it and, you know, really do it in incremental steps. And that's really the message of the book is have a big idea, but how you get there is one step at a time. And that's how people have found success. Yeah, you don't have to have 100% success rate every time you try something. Totally. If you take a big bet and you try something and it works out 10% of the time, that's pretty damn great. (laughs) Right. And I talk in the book um, about staying a farm in the mountains one summer and wanting to run distance and run on these mountainous hills. And, you know, my trainer said, just look three feet ahead. 
And then when I when that was an effective strategy, just run to the mailbox. Now just run to the end of the road. And what she was really doing is what we all need to do in life. Like, don't look at the finish line because you're going to think you can never get there. But look at what you can do today or this week or this month and who can help you get further and faster in that. Reach beyond your bubble and reach out to others and find who can help you with that. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for taking on a big task in chunks. Exactly. Whether it's some personal task or right. starting up a company. Right, and everything. right. And I literally yeah. write out chunks. Like in the work mm, we do in really. initiatives, it's almost like, okay, well, what conditions do we have to have present before we move on to the next condition right. while never losing sight of the really big idea? Mm -hmm. And now I know that you're also a big believer in this idea of a minimum viable product. <laughs> I had Eric Reese on a while back who talked about it. Right. Also, I've had uh, Richard Branson on, and he oh, said yeah. he's a big believer in ramping up quickly putting it out there and if it doesn't work move on don't spend a fortune and a lot That's of time right. on something right um, it's kind of counterintuitive I think for a lot of people it's, it's very counterintuitive and I think most people know what minimum viable product is but just to describe it quickly it really is recognizing that today it's probably a better time than ever before to try new ideas because of technology and different things. You know, you can get market signals. You can try things before you ever start a company or before you ever build a product. You can build a website and get a sense, is there a, you know, and, and a sure. simple one at that. Yeah. And is there a consumer interest in what I'm doing? There's a lot of ways using technology today that you can test out ideas long before you invest a bunch of money or do a bunch of work. And, of course, Eric in his Lean Startup book talks about Zappos and how they really weren't a real company yet. They just created this web page with pictures of shoes to figure out would people even order mm -hmm. shoes online. And then once they realized they would, then they set up the company and the inventory and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Now I feel like uh, companies are doing that with the GoFundMe thing where Absolutely. they put it up on Facebook and right. see if they can raise the money by selling shoes or whatever. Right. And then go to the expense of actually manufacturing. That's exactly right. And that's yeah. a great example of the kind of platforms today that can let you sort of test what I call market signals to see if your idea makes sense. And this is not just about for-profit companies. Obviously, you know, in terms of initiatives, you'll take forward or a nonprofit or a movement that you're building. You can find out, you know, are people, is it resonating with people out there? Now, in the fourth section, you talk about reaching beyond your bubble. We talked a little bit about that, but I was particularly interested in this data that shows that racial and ethnic diversity in organizations has a huge impact on their bottom line. Can you talk a little about that? I can, and I'm going to give you some stark data before I go to that really good news data that you just talked about. Um, so last year in the U.S., 90% of venture capital went to men. But of the money itself, meaning the deals, mm -hmm. but of the money itself, only 2% went to a, a startup with a female founder. Wow. Nice. Uh, only 1% to startups with an African-American founder. And 75% went to just three places, California, Massachusetts, and New York. So the bottom line is we're not diversified in where we're spreading the capital or what I call the jet fuel both mentoring and the money itself, mm -hmm. to build new businesses. We're highly concentrated in just a few places. Man, do we need all the players on the field more than ever before. Yeah. So we know what's happening with the capital. So then this data is coming along that's overwhelming and compelling by McKinsey, Deloitte, Boston Con Consulting Group, much of what I, I put in the book, to make clear that diverse companies are outperforming their cohorts that are not diverse 
in dramatic ways, in some cases as much as by 35%, but not just financially outperforming, more agile, more innovative. And it makes total sense to me because it goes back to what we were saying before. If teams have different perspectives on them, of course they're going to see opportunities that one person won't. They will be able to cover the blind spots that you might have as you go into a new market if you have people with a lot of different backgrounds. So, you know, I think people are in some cases gripped with fear today, in some cases disillusioned. The bottom line is we need all the ideas on the field and we need all the players on the field. Absolutely. And that means we have to do something about those that have been left on the the sidelines, which are people of color, women, and people, quite frankly, between the coasts. You know, we write them off. We call them flyover country, for goodness sakes. Right. And yet the majority, the vast majority of Fortune 500 companies were started between the coasts. Yeah. And this is something that your husband, Steve, told me as well. And I know that you guys are doing this thing where you go on a bus tour through the heartland and all the places in between the coasts looking for the next big company, the next big idea, the big innovators that are not getting all the attention from the VC funds. Right. right. Uh, Tell me a little about that. Okay. Well, so at the Case Foundation, we call this our inclusive entrepreneurship work. Steve is chairman at the Case Foundation. We describe it uh, as race, place, and gender. But Steve has an investment firm called Revolution, and he really has taken forward this rise of the rest that you speak of. And what he does is he takes a team, including by the way, press and investors, and takes them to five cities, you know, out in the middle of the nation for a week on this bus where they go from town to town. And they unveil and spotlight the amazing innovation and talent that's between the coasts to really begin to put a spotlight on the fact that we need more attention between our coasts and couldn't be more proud of what he's doing there. I think he's making a really big difference. And the kind of innovation we're seeing is crazy in places you really wouldn't expect it, like Pittsburgh, for instance, which we think of sort of as a dying steel town, right? Too many people think of it that way. The innovation taking place in Pittsburgh couldn't be more exciting. Uber and Ford are doing their autonomous vehicle stuff there because of Carnegie Mellon and the robotics talent. There's a, a... Two co-founders, a man and a woman, that created a company called Soul Power. And the idea is it uses the energy that's created as you walk. So it's an insert in your shoe. Oh, okay. And so you can charge (laughs) and you can charge small devices. So the military, of course, thinks that could be a brilliant battlefield solution. So we're just seeing amazing innovation across the nation. Yeah, and you and your husband's foundation invests in people who you say will change the world. Who are the kind of people and organizations that you yourself are making a big bet on these days? Yeah, yeah. Well, this goes to, like I said, our inclusive work, but it's also tied in with this new realm of investing called impact investing. Mm -hmm. And these are companies that have baked in right from the start, not only the pursuit of a financial return for the investor, but um, a societal impact and, you know, core to what they do. Some companies I'll mention, some people will know, some will have never heard of. One, Warby Parker. I mean, oh, yeah. Warby Parker. company. Yeah, super hip brand. People yeah. told them no one's ever going to buy their eyeglasses online. Of course, now they think they're working their way toward a $2 billion valuation. But, you know, the Warby model is when you buy a pair of Warby glasses, someone in the developing world that can't afford a pair of glasses will get one too. And so far, four million pairs of glasses have been given away. And I think they're That's coming up incredible. with even a bigger announcement pretty soon. But I sit on the board and am invested in a company called Brick in Kenya. 
BRIC is taking internet to the last mile across Africa. So we see there's a company, Tala, um, which is really looking at uh, providing loans for the unbanked at a more competitive rate. So, you know, whether it's sort of in um, financial, like literacy, financial, or education technology, which we call ed tech, there are just so many food, ag tech, these sectors are not going to be led by people on the coast. The elites don't necessarily understand the next wave of innovation, which really will be geared at people who need it most, particularly people who are poor, whether they be in the United States or around the world. Yeah, and you talk a lot about the importance of seeing around corners. You and your husband certainly did that with AOL back when you know, it was very hard to convince a business why they would ever need a website or email. Ben, it was so yeah. funny. And not only that, but even like they, they would say, well, why would I need an email address? Why would my business need a website? And, you yeah. you know, I mean, we, of course, could see the benefit. But when nobody had one, it wasn't so clear yeah. back then. Yeah, yeah. And in a section that you call Let Urgency Conquer Your Fear, uh, you talk about uh, the seminal moment in AOL's early days when this vital deal with Apple fell apart and you guys had to suddenly pivot and figure out a new strategy that ultimately ended up being a very good thing for AOL. What did you guys do in that situation? Yeah, well, a lot of people don't know that the early company um, that was AOL, we didn't have our own service. We uh, let other, we built services for other companies. So the big one was for Apple, and it was called Apple Inc. And it was about the company strategy. I mean, that's all we did. And it was very rare because Apple didn't let their logo appear on any other products, but they did in this case. So they woke up one day and gave us a call. It was a dark day in our history and said, you know, we just don't want anyone using our logo anymore. So we're basically divorcing you. <laughs> well, we were like, oh, my gosh, it was existential. That's all we had done was built the service. And um, so, you know, we went back to the conference room when the news hit and said, all right, what are we going to do now? And it was one of the first of all, it was a failure moment. Second of all, it was, and that's the fifth principle, let urgency conquer fear. And we said, well, we've always talked about maybe we'll just create our own service. Maybe this is our moment. So we got kind of a divorce settlement from Apple of just a few <laughs> million dollars. It wasn't much, but in those days it was enough to keep us alive. And we created the American Online Service known as AOL today. Um, so obviously that was like one of the best moments that could have happened to the company. But in that moment, we couldn't have seen that. Yeah. I mean, Silicon Valley is littered with the corpses of tech companies that were huge and then failed to pivot when they really needed to. Yeah. And obviously, you know, we're a little saddened about the longer trajectory that AOL took and the failure of the AOL Time Warner merger, which I still believe was absolutely the right idea. In fact, if anything, it was the right idea 20 years too early because if you look at companies like Disney yeah. or Comcast or any of them today, they're really trying to undertake a strategy of what we thought that merger would bring. But there was a culture clash like none I'd ever seen, and the teams just couldn't really find a way to come together, and the execution failed. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in those early days, I mean, AOL had such success that at one time we were carrying... 50% of the nation's internet traffic. Yeah. That's how big it was. Yeah. Gosh. Now, I want to wrap up by sort of playing devil's advocate here a little bit. I mean, fear is a rational evolutionary response to legitimate threats. Are Correct. there cases where you want to listen to that doubt in your head, where you draw the line between being fearless and foolhardiness? Yeah. Well, 
fear and dealing with risk is something, as you say, that really is in our DNA for a reason. Mm. I mean, there are times you need to listen to that, you know, fight or flight kind of. But I try to put in the book an assessment of what is reckless risk, what is measured risk, Mm. and where are you? Because, you know, Ben, what might be measured for you might be reckless for me if I'm working two jobs and raising kids and I can't just, you know, be all in on something right away, but I could begin to do something. So this idea of how do we begin to understand what risks are okay to take and what ones just aren't for us right now, I write a lot about that in the book, and I also give a lot of resources of other books that can help people assess that more fully. But generally speaking, you know, the book is about ordinary people who've done extraordinary things. They've done so through risk-taking, and the bottom line is great things just don't come from the comfort zone. You often have to get a little uncomfortable and take some risks. But, you know, we say uh, be bold, take risks, change the world. Good advice. Well, as someone who's seeing around corners, uh, I just have to ask, either on the nonprofit side or on the private sector, what are the areas that you see as being huge in the next, say, 20 years? Yeah, where where, right. where are things going to really pop? Before well, you we know, go? that sharing economy that came along, which mm-hmm. really was more, you know, choice and control for people who had a lot of choice and control, right? So, right. Okay, so maybe you went from, you know, uh, some car service to Uber now because it can be there faster or whatever. That's, that's innovation in its own way. When it's really going to matter is when it reaches across to the mm-hmm. masses where it has not. And I'm most excited by these areas, most untouched by tech and innovation today. We've talked about some of them. Um, But, you know, even in things like food and agriculture, look, we're coming up, you know, by 2050, we're going to have to feed too many people for what we have today in terms of our agricultural capacity. So there are some major innovations that can come forward. But again, they're going to start with someone seeing a problem, living a problem and saying, I can do something about that. That's what the book is there for, is a playbook and hopefully an inspiration to get them started. Good advice. Now, where can people visit the Case Foundation? Is that casefoundation.org? Yes. Okay, And on Facebook, we have a video series on Be Fearless as well. And so um, you can find it on Be Fearless Stories on Facebook. Terrific. Once more, the book is Be Fearless, Five Principles for a Life of Breakthroughs and Purpose. Gene Case, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks, Ben. Thanks again to Gene Case for coming on the podcast. Visit the Case Foundation at casefoundation.org and order her new book, Be Fearless, Five Principles for a Life of Breakthroughs and Purpose on Amazon, Audible, or anywhere books are sold. In today's age, it can be hard to sit down and learn more. You may think you don't have time to read a book. Well, think again. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways so you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for my audience. Go to Blinkist.com kick to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com kick to start your free seven-day trial. One more time, Blinkist.com kick. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at KickAssNews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.
Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.